Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Man, if there was ever a quote I, I just wanted to put on a huge billboard for our culture, it's this. Uh, when God is forgotten, the creature becomes unintelligible. Oh, man. Yeah, it, it, just, it just doesn't get any more true than that. So last week, just to give us a little recap, because obviously there's a great connection between what we covered last week and this week. Um, Pope Paul VI, he invited us to recover... Uh, what he called a total vision of man, right? So in his document, Humanae Vitae, uh, the noisy cricket, um, yeah, he, he invited us, he said, like, really, in order for you to understand what this is, what I'm reproposing, um, we need to recover a total vision of man, and we need a new adequate anthropology, is the language that John Paul II took up. We need an adequate anthropology. Isn't that a cute picture? I just found it. I was like, I don't, it doesn't really matter. I just want it in the slideshow. So, so adequate anthropology. What, what is an adequate anthropology doing? An adequate anthropology is answering, what does it mean to be human? What is the meaning of our human embodiment? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And most importantly still, how do we get there? So there, there's a competing anthropology at work in the world today in the progressive narrative that... Um, what does it mean to be human? They've got their own answer. What is it, the meaning of our human embodiment? They've got their own answer. All of these questions. Um, and it turns out if you follow that narrative, if you follow that anthropology, it leads you into misery and chaos and so much suffering and mountains of corpses. Um, the church's anthropology, this vision that comes out of the scriptures, out of the tradition of the, yeah, the, the lived experience of the church, this is what brings flourishing. Back to that image of you buy the plant from Home Depot, right? It comes with the little tag that tells you, if you would have this thing flourish, do this, right? To answer the ought questions, like ought I do this, is it good for me to do this? To answer the ought question, you have to first answer the is question, to get a little philosophical on you. Before you can get to the oughts, you have to first answer the is. So like, you have to know what a thing is before you can answer the question, um, yeah, what ought I do with this, right? So like, Ought I throw this thing off a bridge? Ought I, like, is it okay if I submerge this thing underwater? Would it be okay if I burned this thing? Well, it all depends on what. What are we talking about, right? Right? Well, uh, like, ought I throw a paper airplane off a bridge? Sure. Why not? That's great. That's, like, totally in keeping with the nature of paper airplane. But a puppy? No. No, you shouldn't do that, right? Like, just from the side, like leaving aside, like that's sick and messed up. But like, if you would have, like, if your puppy would flourish, like the kind of being, the nature of puppy will not be, f- it will not flourish if it's hurtling off a bridge, right? It's not going to do too great, right? Ought I uh, submerge this goldfish underwater? Yeah, that's great. That's actually that'd be really wonderful for the goldfish, right? That's in keeping with the nature of the goldfish. But this priceless piece of art, ought I, is it good for me, for, is it good for the thing to submerge it underwater? No, don't do that. Ought I burn this house? No, like, like that's not good, right? That's not good for the house or for the people, but ought I burn this marshmallow? Yeah, great, go for it, right? Like, to answer the ought question, you have to answer the is question first, right? 
This is what the church is saying, right? Ah, yeah, all right. Here's the point, right? Without understanding what the human person is, which includes our origin, which includes our destiny, you won't be able to answer meaningfully, ought I, is it good for me to fornicate? Is it good for me, ought I view pornography, engage in masturbation? Is it good for me to attempt to marry someone of my same sex? Is it good for me to try and have sexual relations with someone of the same sex? Ought I, is it good for me to take puberty blockers, to have cross-sex hormones, to have life-altering surgeries as a young adult, right? To live a trans identity. Is that good for me? Ought I do that? Uh, No. Like, ought I, is it good for me and my spouse to engage in sterile sexual intimacy through contraception? No. Because of the kind of being that you are. Because of the kind of being that you are. None of those things will promote your flourishing, right? So when it comes to these morality questions... The church is simply trying to say, like, whatever the church says no to, the church is saying that with the tone of a mother, right? Like, no, no, don't do that. It's not good for you. It's, that's going to hurt you if you do that. Like, those of you who are parents, my God, how many times have you said to your kids, no, stop doing that, right? Like, no, you can't use the microwave as a fork warmer. No, you can't do that, right? You can't. Don't put that in the cats, whatever. We'll stop there. I remember my dad, when I, was, when I was like 12, my buddy and I, we wanted to build a high ropes course in the woods. Okay? We thought, like, we, knew how, we know how to do this. We made, we, we made harnesses, and, um, and uh, we went to the drugstore, and we bought carabiners. Didn't know that they were keychains. We thought they were real carabiners. <laughs> my dad told, my dad was like, no, you're not going to do this. And I was like, what do you know, right? So, I uh, there's my buddy and I. We got he's I've got I'm in a homemade harness. And he's hoisting me up. He's belaying me out of this tree. I'm 12 years old. He's 13 years old. We're idiots, okay? And I'm, you know, remember I was husky. I was very husky. I got my carabiner there, and he's lowering me down like 10 feet off the ground. All of a sudden, just goes, right? And I just ah! just falls straight out of the ground, right? Like, there was, like, a root, like, a tree thing. Like, it was, like, right next to me. I'm like, oh, my God, I could have been impaled, right? <laughs> Ought I build a high ropes course from scratch in the woods, Dad? No, you really shouldn't do that. That's not good for you. That's not going to promote your flourishing. Okay. So, that's where all this comes from. So, let's look at this quote again. This uh, super important quote, paragraph 1015 of the Catechism. The flesh... The flesh, not the soul. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in a God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem, excuse me, the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. Last week we talked about why the enemy is after our flesh. This is the mosaic of uh, Revelation, book of Revelation. It's in the Basilica in D.C. Um, isn't that awesome? So, so awesome. You've got the dragon, right? The Nahash in Hebrew, this massive dragon monster, that's Satan, who's going after the woman who's pregnant with child, right? Laboring to bring forth a child. By the way, what does that image of Our Lady remind anybody of? Our Lady Guadalupe. Our Lady Guadalupe, right? The only Marian apparition where she appears pregnant, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon. I got to move on. Okay. I would just talk about that all night. Oh, the, the catechism quote? 
1015, paragraph 1015. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the enemy wants to confuse us and eliminate the sex difference because he's going after the family. He hates life. Right, the family is the cradle of life. He hates life. Anywhere where life is formed, anywhere where life is grown or nurtured or like develops, he wants in there. Right, the family first of all, and but especially the womb. It's like who's seen Hamilton or listened to the music from Hamilton? Only Chris Zucker. Wow. Oh, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Wow. He's my favorite founder. He's my favorite founder. Uh, I just can't. Okay. I'm going to move on from Hamilton. Anyway, all right. He wants to get into the womb. He wants to get into the womb. He wants to get into the womb. It's like next to the altar. The womb is the most sacred place in the cosmos. Right? It's where God touches humanity over and over and over again. Right there. We're co-creators with God in the act of bringing forth new life. And back to our boy Pope Gandalf last week, right? <laughs> oh, man. Humane Vitae right there. That's Humane Vitae. That's Humane Vitae, right? The enemy wanted into that tight knot nexus. He wanted to break apart marriage, sex, and babies belonging together in that order. He wanted to rip apart the unitive from the procreative. He wanted us to be able to just go after the pleasure without the possibility of procreation. The enemy wanted into the very act itself, which brings forth new life. He wanted to desecrate the altar of life, which is the womb. That's what he wanted to do, right? You shall not pass. Unfortunately, so many couples, so many people since 1968, since Humanity Vitae came out, have just said, nah, we don't think you know what you're talking about, Gandalf, right? So many couples have invited the enemy in right into that place, right? The enemy is after our bodies because our bodies, the body, the male body, female body, in our complementarity, right, we reveal God. We reveal God. Our bodies image God. This is John Paul II's thesis statement, right, from his Theology of the Body, that major teaching project. That the body, in fact, and only the body, I mean, just take that in for a second, only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, what? The mystery, hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. And what is the invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God that the body is a sign of? The Trinity. That our God is an endless communion of life and love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all time pouring themselves out in love. Right? The dance of the Trinity. Perichoresis was the word that the church fathers would use. This dance of the persons of the Trinity. Endless life, endless love, right? And our complementarity gives us the ability to image that. We image that. God's very being is love, the catechism says. And God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. God is endless, self-giving love. And the human person made male and female. Like we are the... Image bearers of that, right? I love this quote from John Paul II. Man appears in the visible world 
as the highest expression of the divine gift because he bears with himself the inner dimension of the gift and with it he carries into the world his particular likeness to God with which he transcends and also rules his visibility in the world, his bodiliness, his masculinity and femininity. What JP2 is getting at here is that like God's love exists to be given away. Right? The Father gives to the Son, the Son receives and gives back to the Father, and that giving and receiving brings forth the Holy Spirit. Right? God's love is gift form. Right? So the human person, he's saying, like, we exist to be, we are gifts to be given away. Like, you are a gift to be given, to be bestowed upon another, to be bestowed upon others. Like, we exist in gift form, which means that our flourishing, our happiness, our joy is found in the measure that we resemble our God, that we lay our lives down, that we pour ourselves out, right? St. Paul, right? St. Paul who said, uh, like, I have, I'm being poured out like a libation, right? Like he's being emptied, right? Paul who, who in Philippians said, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but he emptied himself, right? The word there is kenosis. He poured himself out. Look at that bald head. Anybody recognize that head? <laughs> I was crying my eyes out in this moment, like you wouldn't believe. Fundamental concept from Vatican II. Man, the human person cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. This truth is written into our very bodies. It's written to our very bodies. John Paul II called this the spousal dimension to the body the body bears this like divine signature right like the body of every man like as a man you stand there in the shower you ever look down and be like like I, my body doesn't make sense maybe that's just me okay uh, get real vulnerable okay but like the body of every man says like i am incomplete I am made for another in the same way that a, a body of every woman says, I am incomplete. I am meant to be given away and to be received by another. In other words, I am made for love, right? The body says that. The body speaks, right? This whole life beginning in our families growing up in this fallen world and like every human relationship that we have, all of it is meant to be a school of love where we learn to like enter into this self gift, we we, we ha like, when you meet like we've all met people who live in this sort of black hole egotism, like they just like me 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 my 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 self 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 right like they all they see is them, like they have not learned that this life you are meant to learn how to give yourself away to pour yourself out, We're meant to learn how to enter into the dance, like there like heaven is a party. It's a there's a dance happening in heaven. It's the Trinity in this endless self-giving love. We have to learn how to enter into the rhythm of that dance. I want to show you a couple who's learned the dance. You ready for this? I don't think you're ready.
The video is like 10 minutes long. So. He's like 94, she's 87. Isn't that amazing? They've learned the dance, baby. They've learned the dance. Okay, kind of kidding, kind of serious. I want to show you this couple, though. This is a couple. This right here. This, seriously, though, this is a couple who has really learned to enter into the Trinitarian dance. Oh, man, so beautifully. More beautifully, I would say, than, than that last couple in, in powerful ways. I don't count it a burden, whatever, to have to care for her. I, I need to do everything. From the moment she gets up to the moment she goes to bed, I do absolutely everything. Uh, clean her teeth, uh, shower, dress, everything. And um, But it's it's a privilege. I count it a great privilege to, to care for this one that I've loved all of these years and continue to love. This is the year where we'll celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Our stories have been a, a lovely story. I first saw her when she was eight years old and her brother became my best friend. We grew up together and as we grew up, yeah, she was there. And I knew that she used to stare at me when I was playing footy with my with her brother and uh, another friend and when we used to ride bikes and she kept staring at me, but I wasn't interested. I was 17, she was 16. I saw her dolled up, dressed up, and she had an A-line dress on, and boom, it was gone. I was, uh, she was the one for me then, absolutely. <laughs> when we first started uh, dating, I used to ride my bike from where I lived to where she was, and that was about five kilometers on a Saturday afternoon, because it was the only chance we had to get together. And uh, it was hair wash day for her, and she used a special cream in her hair for a shampoo, and I can still smell it because that smell was so particular, so nice. It was just absolutely special. We had a bike. I used to ride everywhere on my bike and then let her bike as well. And we put a, a baby chair on the front of her bike. And so we carried our babies around on the bike with her as well. So, yeah, bike's been part of our lives. And I guess that has something to do with us now. Around about 2004, five, I began to notice uh, that there were things going wrong. She was finally diagnosed with uh, the horrible disease of Alzheimer's. Having lived overseas, I knew that with a bike you can do lots of things. So I had a bike made, a bike chair made. We take it to the beach and ride along beside the beach. And as we do that, we see lots of people. A lot of people come talk to us because it's a unique thing. Nobody else has got a bike chair quite like that. I am determined to care for her every need, every need. You see, God has loved us so unconditionally. And I understand that God has put his love in my heart. And because I realize how much God has loved me, that's how I too can love my lovely wife. She has done so much for me over all of these years. Now she can't, but I can, and I can return her love. And it's a love that, uh, well, to me, means I can do everything for her. She's my princess, I'm her William, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Would you have it any other way? No, um, no. Uh, not at all. We love each other.
that's a couple that's learned to dance. They've learned to enter into that self-giving love. It's so powerful. Okay, so, so we're talking about marriage. Marriage is what brings us here together today. All right. Need a little levity after that. All right. Oh, man, what is marriage? Good Lord, what a question from a secular cultural standpoint. Marriage is like whatever a couple wants it to be, right? In today's world, marriage is whatever they want it to be. I, I, Deacon Rich and I, we could tell you story after story, I'm sure, of couples who we try and form for marriage prep that like their whole vision and imagination of marriage is so much more formed by Hollywood, TV, movies, right, than it is the gospel, than it is the scriptures, right? Like, let's just name some of our favorite, I don't know, TV marriage couples, famous married people on TV or shows. Give me some. Give me some. Who, who you, in the TV shows that you've watched over the years, who's some of your faves? The Bundys, The Simpsons. The Bundys, The Simpsons? Oh, what wonderful, happy couples. Oh, homie. Archie and Edith. Archie and Edith. Okay, give me some others. The Huxtables. The Huxtables, great. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm huge fans of Pam and Jim. This was a great, that was a great couple, right? Or anybody from, uh, you know, the 90s. You got your Ross and Rachel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, the one that was huge for me as a kid growing up in the 90s, I've myself here, was this couple, Corey and Topanga from Boy Meets World. Holy smokes. What about Jessica and Nick? Oh, the Newlyweds show, yeah. The chicken of the no, sea. Is this real chicken? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Big Fat Greek Wedding, Wesley and Buttercup, Princess Buttercup. You know, there's some great ones. All right, so here's the question. Why are there so many stories about love? Why are there so many stories about love? Why are there so many songs? Like, haven't we written enough love songs? Like, do you, like, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we're like, yeah, no, I think we've said all there is to say about love. No more poems, no more songs, no more movies, no more plays, no more rom-coms. We've done them all. Like, I don't think so. Right? I don't think we're ever going to get to that point. I, I just, like, there's all of these songs, all of these stories that there's this, like, longing for everlasting love. Why does every fairy tale end with, and they lived? Yeah. Why? <laughs> like, what is that? What is that? Like, because deep down, buried in our hearts, John Paul II said, what he would say is an echo of the original story that says we all know we were made for a forever love. We all know we were made for an eternal love. We all know that we are made like, like for an endless love, right? That's what we all know. We know it deep down. We know it in our bones. It's in our soul. Every culture, every people that has left us a written record of its, of its existence, like I said last week, has had the institution of marriage. Sure, there's been some variations on themes. You know, some cultures have had polygamy, but never was it the case that you had... I mean, it was always the case it was between a man and a woman. You might have one man and many women, right? But it was a man and woman right? of, of adult childbearing age. Because only that kind of relationship is procreative in type. Every culture, every civilization knows marriage because it's so deep in our bones. It's so deep in our story. Let's watch this. I find this to be so beautiful. 
make sure you are able to read the text. If you can't, come closer. Because it's in other languages. Την κίτην αυτών ανεπιβούλευτον διατήρησον, υπερτουριστήν αυτούς τη και ημάς από πάσης λήψεως, οργής, κινδύνου και ανάγκης. Του Κυρίου Δεϊθόμενου. Dlatego opuści człowiek ojca swego i matkę i przyłączy się do żony swojej i będą dwoje jednym ciałem. Tajemnica to wielka jest, lecz ja mówię o Chrystusie i o Kościele. The beauties of our house are sweeter 
del corazón con una sola mirada de tus ojos. This series was put together, um, uh, the Vatican called together all of these different world leaders, amazing filmmakers, they produced this series called Humanum, these amazing videos, if you go to ecchefilms.com, E-C-C-E, films.com, oh my gosh, they're just like, they're so good, so, so, so good. I want to break dance like that one kid in, uh, in the video. What's that? Don't hurt yourself. That's why I didn't play the basketball game today. All right, when we look at marriage in our world today, marriage is under attack. It's under attack in every way imaginable. Marriage is maligned. Marriage is reduced. Our culture is so confused when it comes to marriage. Um, I mentioned last week that marriage was in a big way redefined back in 2015 with the Supreme Court decision of Obergefell versus Hodges. Um, that made same-sex marriage the, the law of the land. But that wasn't the first time the marriage got redefined. You have to go back you know, several decades to when uh, no-fault divorce was introduced into our country. That, that was what really, like the first like, blow to the institution, it took away the presumption of permanency uh, of marriage, um, which was a huge thing. It was a huge thing. Um, Marriage got redefined then. All right, so what is marriage from a Catholic perspective? Um, because obviously marriage existed before Christ came on the scene. It exists in all these other non-Christian cultures. So it's a natural institution, right? It's a natural reality that Christ, when he comes on the scene, he elevates it to the level of a sacrament. That's the language of the church. Oh, darn it. Um, do you, could you run to your office and grab your marriage ritual book? Would it be a big trouble to grab that? I meant to grab, or could you just pull up the nuptial blessing on your phone? Pull up the prayer of the nuptial blessing. I meant to bring my, my marriage ritual, but I forgot it. Um, okay. Yeah, so Christ elevated this natural institution. He elevated it to the level of a sacrament to make it into a sign that revealed not only who God is, but he made it into a sign to reveal his the nature of his relationship to humanity, his relationship to the church. This is how Christ relates to the church, right? The church, both the church suffering, that's the church on earth, we're the church like making our way in this valley of tears on the way to heaven, hopefully, right? He relates to the church suffering, that's, and also the church triumphant, that's the church in glory, the saints in glory. So Christ is the bridegroom, the church is his bride, right? This is how, holy smokes, um, could you just have it on your phone? Yeah. Okay, and I'll just read it off your phone. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Heaven is, uh, heaven is described in the book of Revelation as a wedding feast. So, like, Christ came not to simply rescue us so that we would just be buddies with him, right? He came to rescue us, to fill our hearts so fully and completely with divine life. He came to marry us. He came to marry us. 
to unite our nature to his nature, to espouse himself to us forever. And every single earthly marriage is meant to be a sign, is meant to point to Christ's relationship to the church. Every marriage, every single marriage is meant to point to Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. Yeah, so beautiful. Where do we see this in the scripture? We see this especially in, uh, this is going to drive me nuts. Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You've heard me talk about this. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. So again, you have this couple. They have left father and mother. She's left father and mother. They've come to the church. They've come to the church on their wedding day to unite themselves to each other in the sacrament of matrimony. St. Paul's saying this natural reality that we see in Genesis This is a great mystery because it speaks to, it points to Christ's relationship to the church, to all of humanity, to Christ and his bride. He's saying, if you want to understand what he's doing on the cross, he's saying, look at a couple, them giving themselves away. And he's saying, if you want to understand what you're doing, what you've done as a married couple, look to Christ and the church. He's the model. That's what he's saying. Um, Do you have the nuptial blessing there? So at, uh, at Catholic weddings, after the Our Father, um, the priest and the deacon will pray over the couple this, this prayer. So it, you hear this vision, this whole idea, um, in the church's liturgy, in the church's prayers. The church has this vision woven throughout all of this. Okay, O God, who by your mighty power created all things out of nothing, and when you had set in place the beginnings of the universe, formed man and woman in your own image, making the woman an inseparable helpmate to the man that they might, know, they might be no longer two but one flesh and taught that what you were pleased to make one must never be divided. O God, who consecrated the bond of marriage by so great a mystery that in the wedding covenant you foreshadowed the sacrament of Christ and his church. O God, by whom woman is joined to man, And the companionship they had in the beginning is endowed with the one blessing not forfeited by original sin nor washed away by the flood. Then we ask God to bless the couple. But do you hear how in the church's prayer, thanks Deacon, you hear how in the church's prayer, the church is like, this is what's going on. This is what a marriage is. This is what marriage is. Like so many couples come to us to get married and like, you'll ask them the question, what is marriage about? Like, they usually don't know, but if they do have an answer, it's like, well, like, being bonded with your person. That's a phrase these days, like, your person. I found my person. (laughs) Okay, so. (laughs) Okay, yeah, great. You found your person. Uh, No, that's not what it's about. It's about Jesus. Like, like, here's the thing, like, like, bride, if you think the goal of marriage is Philadelphia, and groom, you think the goal of marriage is New York, but in fact, the goal of marriage is Chicago, if we don't get on the same page, you're going to end up in the wrong direction. Chicago, in this example, is to reveal Christ's love to the church through your marriage, right? The goal of marriage is to be a revelation, to be a lighthouse, to be an icon, to be a sign 
of Christ's crazy love, this radical love of his on the cross. Christ pouring himself out in life-giving love. To be a credible witness to that, that's, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. That's what every marriage is meant to be. It's meant to be a revelation of Christ and the church, which means that marriage is not the be-all and end-all. It's not meant to be the full sum total satisfaction of your hearts. And if you're married, you probably already know that. <laughs> right? like, like, oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You are not meant to be the sum total and perfect satisfaction of your spouse's heart. What you, are, what you have pledged to do, what married couples pledge to do, is you, you're saying on your wedding day, I pledge to be the one who helps you learn the dance. I promise to be the one who helps prepare you for heaven. And I'm going to do that by, by being a broken, wounded, needy sinner that you get to love and forgive and be patient with over and over and over again. But I'll also do that by being loving, patient, and forgiving and merciful over and over and over again. Like one of the things I tell my couples when I prepare them is that marriage is like the sacrament of divine mercy. Like divine mercy is not God's like decision to withhold a punishment from us that we rightly deserve. He's not like, okay, like I'm really gonna, you know what? All right, not in my mercy, you're good. Um, no, divine mercy is the crazy, unfathomable way that God chooses to love us in our unlovability. Like those parts of us that are just so unlovable and broken and shameful, those parts that where we choose hell, he says, I'm going to love you there. I'm going to love you in your worst. And like, like as couples who are married, like you get to be the one who dispels the lie over and over again to your spouse, that lie that like we all so deeply believe that says I'm lovable in a conditional way. You get to dispel the lie that says like, like surely now, now like I've, I've, I've revealed too much, I've done too much, I've crossed the line, surely you're going to back up now. And like your spouse gets to say, no, I'm going to keep pressing in. You're like, why? Because <laughs> it's divine mercy. It's the sacrament of divine mercy. Every couple that gets married, when they pronounce their vows, all of the vows, both, the form, both forms of the vows, they both mention death. Right, all the days of my life, or until death do us part. And you can tell a lot about a couple which form they prefer. A lot of them don't even want to think about until death do us part. Like just all the days of my life. Right? You want to be like you. You know what that means, though, right? Like, <laughs> I have found, and Deacon, you can probably back this up. You will back this up. That funerals are so much more about life, and weddings are so much more about death. People come to a wedding, people come to the church on the day of their wedding, whether they know it or not, they come in order to die, to put something on an altar. What's an altar, right? If something's on the altar in the Old Testament, it's dying. <laughs> like, you've come to be placed upon the altar. Offer your bodies, St. Paul says, as a living sacrifice, right? Every couple, you're promising to each other, I promise to be the one who helps you for your last breath. I'll, I'll promise to be the one who will help you take that last breath. 
I will love you well. I will help you enter into the dance so that as we dance this dance throughout this life, when you close your eyes on this world and breathe your last, you simply continue the dance into eternity. So that on your deathbed, you look at your spouse and all you have in your heart is gratitude. Like, thank you for loving me so well to prepare me to meet love himself. That's what you've pledged. That's what you pledge. That's your job as a spouse. To enter into the dance. To help them enter. Remember this image right here. This space, this open space. This is the invitation where we enter into the dance. And that's what marriage is doing. Marriage was created by God in the beginning to be a sign that pointed to the eternal supper of the Lamb. The eternal marriage. Like that's what heaven is again, right? Heaven is union with God. It's not being in the room where God lives. It's not being in the cloud town where God lives. It's being in, in union with God. Jesus at the Last Supper you know how many times he uses the word in in John's gospel? Like, like you in me and me and you and they and us and us and that. Like over and over again, he's saying this idea of indwelling. Indwelling. Like spouses, in, in like the, physic, the, the physical limitations of your bodiliness, like it's like you want to get into each other. Like, I want to be in you as much as possible. What is that? That's a longing for this. And that longing you have for your spouse will be perfectly fulfilled in this, in the communion of saints, where we will know and be known as we are known. Like, like what? Yeah. Heaven is the great wedding feast. This is a picture I actually took of a wedding reception I got to go to. It was pretty awesome. (laughs) There was some senators at this wedding. The guy who ran cybersecurity for the Northern Hemisphere apparently was there. I can't tell you. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I actually don't even remember their names. They were forgettable. The wedding was quite memorable. <laughs> um, you can give me a second. I'll think of it. But like the wedding feast, right? Jesus in, those, in the gospels is constantly giving parables. Like the kingdom of heaven is like um, a man who threw a net in the sea and got a whole big group of fish. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, uh, a merchant searching for fine pearls. Uh, it's like leaven. It's like he's got these, he's endlessly trying to create these images. And then he's finally, it feels like he's just exasperated. And he's like, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who threw a wedding feast for his son. <laughs> and everybody was invited. Like, are you picking what I'm putting, are you picking up what I'm putting down, right? The book of Revelation, heaven is a wedding feast. Heaven is this wedding feast and, and everyone's invited, right? Oh, it's so good. But here's the thing, again, marriage is a sign. It's a sign that's pointing to the divine reality. That's what signs do, right? They point to the reality they signify. Like when my family and I, we used to drive to Hilton Head for our family vacation this summer. You'd see the signs, you know, along the highway. You know, it's a 12-hour drive. You'd see the sign, you know, 100 more miles to Hilton Head Island, 50 more miles to Hilton Head Island, right? Well, when we passed one of those signs, we weren't like, pull over, it's a sign! You're like, you hug the sign, you're like, we made it! You know, like, get out the water wings! 
Like, no, it's like, keep driving. Keep driving, yeah. Hit the accelerator, like, go. There's something more. There's something more. Ah! Anybody here read The Great Divorce? I know we're talking about marriage, but The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Anybody here read that? Okay. Oh, yeah, my dogs. Okay, yeah. We gotta, we gotta read The Great Divorce in this parish. But there he has this image of heaven, like that heaven is more solid than this world. Like these ghosts that come up from purgatory, they're like, like translucent and like smudgy. And, but like the grass, it's hard to their feet. It's painful. The raindrops fall like bullets. Like the, the flowers, they can't even pick them up because they're so heavy. Heaven is more solid, right? This reality is more solid than the earthly reality. You got to keep going. Got to keep going. I can understand why people get hung up on this sign. I can understand why people get hung up on, like, man, I'm, I'm 30 and I'm still not married and I'm just, I just need a husband. I need marriage. I get it. I get why people are so hung up on it. Like, sex and marriage and intimacy and spousal love and family life. It is all so good. It's so holy. It is so holy. It's actually, like, the holiest. You want to know what's most holy in this world? Look at just what's most profane, right? Family life, marriage, sex, all of it. It's holy. It is holy, holy, holy. So here's the question. If it is so holy and if it is so good, as I've been saying, why in the world would anybody willingly give up sex and marriage and family for their whole life as a priest or consecrated religious? That's the question. Because there is actually something in this world even better than marriage and sex and intimacy and spousal love and family life. And it's God. Like, I want, I want to make a t-shirt that says, I got a lot of t-shirt ideas. <laughs> but one that just says, God's better than sex. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about my story with you guys a little bit. What's that? I said, would you wear that on a Sunday? No, not on a Sunday. <laughs> not on a Sunday. Maybe on a Saturday. <laughs> I want to share a little bit more with you guys uh, my story and kind of witness a little bit here. Um, this is at my ordination, my priesthood ordination, May 21st, 2016. Bishop Lennon laying his hands. I was actually the last priest he ordained before he died. This is me losing it during the prayer of ordination. Father Damien Ference was the one who got to vest me. You know, Father Blind, he was vesting my classmate, James Colway. But it's a really powerful moment. Like, you, you, you get up off the floor, you get, you, the bishop puts his hands on you, they do the long prayer of ordination, and like, as soon as that prayer's done, you are a priest forever, you know? And uh, you go back to your chairs, you take your deacon stole off. Father Damien came out of the sanctuary and, and uh, first he kissed my stole and then he, I kissed the stole and he put it on me. And he kissed the chasuble and I kissed it and then he put it on me. We were having some issues because I'm about eight feet taller than him. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. There were so many times when I was in the seminary um, so here's, here's, a, here's me at the very beginning, my first year of seminary. 
I'm the guy with the hair and the white shirt in the middle. All right, here. Whoa. Yeah, that's 2008. This is Father Pat Anderson, Father Terry Gratchin, and Father Ryan Mann. Yeah. There were so many times when I was in seminary when, like, in conversations with people, when, you know, where do you go to school? Like, oh, I go to John Carroll, you know. Like, oh, what are you studying? Well, I'm studying philosophy. What are you going to do with that? Well, I'm actually in the seminary. They're like, what? What does that mean? Well, I'm studying to be a priest. What? You mean you're never going to have sex? Like, we just met. We're in Starbucks. What? (laughs) I really wish he wouldn't be so forward. And I would, my response would be, wait, what? That was my point. <laughs> Nobody told me. When John Paul II was teaching the world, that catechesis, that teaching project, when he was teaching the world about marriage and sex and love and desire, he started his teaching project uh, by first pointing to celibacy and priesthood. So he started the catechesis with celibacy and priesthood. He started with uh, referencing Christ's words. He says, in heaven, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. In heaven they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. So what John Paul II is teaching us, he's teaching us something about our final destiny. Celibacy teaches us something, a lot of things about our final destiny. And friends, like we don't spend enough time contemplating that destiny. We don't spend enough time just letting it fill and flood our imagination. Like... Nobody longs for any of the heavens that any of us have ever dreamt of or imagined. Like, I want something unspeakably beautiful and indescribably magnificent. Like, I want something that no painter has ever, ever painted, no composer has ever captured. Like, nobody longs for a heaven filled with fluffy clouds and sexless cherubs. Like, we want... We want the blazing, massive Grand Canyon of infinite longing to be filled to the brim. You want perfect love and perfect friendship and perfect communion and perfect life and all of these things. And these moments in our lives where we, we taste a glimpse of it, like there's all those moments in your life, think about it, those moments where you wish you had the remote control to life, where you wish you could have just said, pause. Because like, there's life and then there's life. Where like life bubbles up through life. It's these little glimpses. These little glimpses. We're going to talk about this more when we talk about the four last things. But like St. Paul says, I count all the suffering of this present age as nothing compared to the glory yet to come. Like all the suffering from every paper cut to every child dying of cancer, to every martyrdom, to like, all the suffering, all the homeless, all the children dying of dysentery and starvation and water pollution in Africa and other parts of the country, all the, the mountains of corpses in the gulag and the Holocaust and the killing fields of Cambodia. Like, like Paul has the audacity to say all of that, as massive as that is, he's like, it's nothing compared to the glory. So what then is this glory? Like, St. Therese, she had this experience where she, she had, like the Lord gave her a little taste of the glory. And she came back from this experience and she said, I would be willing to suffer every martyrdom of every martyr 
from the beginning of time to the end of time, if I could taste one degree more of what I just experienced. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but whatever that is, like, that's the destiny. That's the destiny. So what is celibacy? What is a celibate? A celibate, a celibate priest or celibate deacon is someone who has freely given up earthly marriage, freely given up earthly marriage and all that comes with it in order to devote themselves entirely to God, to live in union with God here and now to be entirely devoted to the kingdom of heaven. It's like we live in two worlds. Like you have one world, one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom. That's what a celibate is doing. That's why we wear black, right? Not because it's simply slimming, because everyone feeds us pastries, <laughs> um, but because it's a sign that I have died to the things of this world, the good things of this world, right? It's to live, to be a sign in the world that, yeah, there's something more. There's something greater than the greatest things that you can seek and experience. Like if earthly marriage is a spark, heaven is a volcanic eruption. It's a supernova. So like no matter how amazing your marriage is, it's only going to be a little, 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 little glimmer, a little appetizer, a little foretaste of the kingdom. Like celibacy and priesthood, they're, they're not, it's not a rejection of sexuality. It's actually a living out of the deepest meaning of sexuality. Like our sexuality, again, right, was meant to be a sign from the beginning that pointed to the supper of the lamb, the eternal supper of the lamb, the wedding, the wedding feast of the lamb. So like, I'm not rejecting sexuality. Like we're actually living out the deepest meaning of what sexuality points to. But it took a long time to get to that point, to understand, like, this is what I'm doing. You don't show up to the seminary on day one, like, yeah, I'm going to be an eschatological sign of the kingdom of heaven, a celibate, you know, living in both worlds. Yeah, I got it. I'm good. No, you're 19, and you got to work through a lot, right? And I did. I had to work through a lot. So I entered the seminary in the fall of 2008. Before I was there, I was at the University of Dayton for, for one year. I had an awesome time at Dayton, sort of. I had great classes. I, I, was, I had great classes. I had some great friends. Um, I had straight A's in all my classes. All my teachers wanted me to be TA's for them. I had this awesome scholarship that got me there, um, doing art and psychology and advertising. And um, I, had, I had a great girlfriend, too. And um, I had all the things that you're supposed to have in college to be happy. But I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. It was like, there's got to be more, right? There's got to be more. And I, I had run from the Lord hard my senior year of high school, not wanting to go to the seminary, not wanting to try it out. And I got to this point eventually where I was like, I, I fine, Lord, I, like, we'll try this your way. And I entered the seminary in the fall of 2008, and I immediately found that I was surrounded by guys who, like, we were all in the same boat and we were all seasick together kind of a thing. Like, it was a good community, like you guys know, David was there for a long time with me. It's an amazing community of brothers, right? A community of brothers. You really call each other brothers because it's, it's an amazing fraternity in the healthiest and holiest sense of the word. Guys who are all aiming the course of their life at the same divine destiny, the same divine destination. Um, and it was fun. It was fun. Seminary was fun. It was hard, but it was fun. And all throughout my undergrad years, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I never struggled with like, 
like the idea of what I'd be giving up. I, I just was, I was crushing it in philosophy. I was growing in holiness. I was learning how to pray. I was with a community of brothers. It was great. It was really, really great. But then my year of first theology, so I've graduated out of Borromeo, go to St. Mary's Seminary. I'm in first theology. And um, that winter, that, that January, went to the Right to Life March. I'd never actually gone to the Right to Life March until then. So part of our, our trip that year, we went uh, to this, um, I don't know, display thing experience that the Sisters of Life put together. So it was like this walking audio tour, and um, they had these huge pictures printed with people's faces on them, and you'd walk up and listen to them tell their story. And this one guy, I don't even, I don't remember his name, obviously never met the guy, He's, he tells his story, and I'm listening to his story, and his story goes like this, that in college, him and his girlfriend, who had been sweethearts since middle school, you know, they were dating in college, and uh, um, she comes to him one day and lets him know that she's, she's pregnant. And this guy was a super successful athlete, very smart engineer, and, uh, and he tells her, like, well, like, this, is, this can't happen, you've got to take care of this meaning like you got to have an abortion. And she was just shocked and dumbfounded and just couldn't believe that that was what he suggested. And he just basically left and didn't respond to any text, didn't respond to any calls for a few weeks. Well, he finally got to this crisis point where he went to the church and was just praying for God to give him some wisdom or guidance or something, like show me what to do. And he, as he tells the story, he says, I felt this overwhelming sense of peace come upon me. And like the hand of God come upon me and say, like, you can do this. Like, you're going to be a dad, you are a dad, and you're going to be okay. He says, I was immediately filled with such peace and confidence. So he says, I ran out of the church, I called my girlfriend, I apologized profusely. I told her, I think we can do this. And he said, she said to me, I had the abortion. And obviously, I never met this guy. I ne- like, but that story, like, kicked a door down in my heart. Like, absolutely, like an FBI raid in my heart just slammed something open that hadn't been opened before. This longing, this deep, deep longing to be a dad. It was there, but it had been dormant. But man, the Lord brought it right up to the surface. I want to be a dad. Come back to the seminary and... um, I felt like it was the first time I had been there. Like, like I was like smelling it for the first time. I was feeling the doorknobs for the first time, the sounds, like I was hearing it all for the first time. And like, what am I doing here? Like, do you know what this place is? Like, Patrick, the, like you're on a conveyor belt and at the end of it, you're going to be stamped into a celibate. You better get off this conveyor belt. Yeah, you should leave. But I didn't feel Jesus calling me to leave. I just felt afraid, and I just suddenly had this cavern of yearning open up inside of me. Well, that summer, one of my best friends from grade school, um, I was, uh, myself and my buddy Jeff Barnish, now Father Jeff Barnish, we were groomsmen in Bob's wedding. Bob grew up, uh, he was two houses down from me um, since third grade, and uh, Bob was this big, tough football player, amazing, amazing guy. And, uh, and his wife here, Ellie, she's like five foot nothing, you know, just this adorable pity, itty bitty thing. And um, 
groomsmen in their wedding, and uh, I mean, yeah, get to their first dance. This was their song. Peterson dancing in the minefields. So Ellie grabs Bob by the hand and brings him out on the center of the dance floor, and he's just crying. Just tears coming down his cheeks, like my buddy, this strong football player guy. And she's just looking up at him like this and just is wiping the tears from under his eyes. And again, leveled. I was leveled. This longing for like, I want to be espoused. I want to be espoused. I want to be looked at like that. I want to be preferred like that. I want to be that to somebody. I want to be espoused. I want, I want the dance. But I came back to the seminary the next fall. And I just, I was in second theology and I was in, <laughs> pain sounds dramatic. It was just a desire that I just couldn't even name. I couldn't even describe. I went to uh, um, Franciscan University that fall to visit a friend of mine who was there. And every couple months or so they have these, they're called festivals of praise, nights of Eucharistic adoration and worship. And we go into the huge field house. There's hundreds of students there. And uh, we sit down and uh, Jesus is put up on the altar in the front of the, the field house. And people are singing and praising. It's just madness. But I swear to God, everywhere around me, it was like young dad's night that night. There was like dad over here with like a baby here. Dad over here, baby here. There's a guy there like swinging babies around his head. <laughs> like there was just dads with babies. I'm like, well, there are no moms? No moms here? It's just dads, right? And I remember like sitting in the back of the field house in my chair, my arms crossed, and Jesus is in the monstrance, and I just remember feeling, you are so far away. Like, how, how will you ever touch this? How will you ever be able to touch this longing? Like, am I just supposed to, like, white-knuckle it through? Am I just supposed to... Like, just try really hard? Like, I just don't see how you're going to be the God of abundance in this. I don't see how you're going to be 12 wicker baskets. I don't see how you're going to be 180 gallons of wine. I just see how you're going to be crumbs and drops. But again, I didn't feel like I was supposed to leave. Bob and Ellie, they've had a few kids since. So Isaiah there, that was Matthias at his baptism. Had a few more since then. That's Xavier. He's my godson. Here's the three boys. That's my godson on the end. Absolutely awesome. She's, uh, she's expecting number four right now. I keep telling Bob, I think it's triplet girls. <laughs> He loves me for that. <laughs> so I was uh, back at the seminary in the fall and uh, just longing, absolutely longing, looking at the priests around me, feeling like none of them look like 
men who are espoused, none of them look like or feel like fathers. None of them look like dads. I just sat with this ache. I just sat with this longing for months, wanting to leave, not feeling like I was supposed to leave. And I was sitting in adoration. We had holy hour on Tuesday afternoons. And I'm just bringing this out to the Lord again. Just this longing, just like, you've got to sort this out for me. Like, please let me leave. Please let me leave. Just show me that it's okay for me to leave. Or somehow speak into this. Those are dangerous words to pray. Because he did. Like, and like, as if it was dictated into my soul, this is what... Um, I, I tend to not share this, but I want to share this with you guys tonight. This was from my journal from Second Theology. Just the Lord spoke this to me. He said, O priest of Jesus Christ, you'll never have the hand of a loving spouse to clasp in yours, but daily your simple fingers will tenderly grip the humility of God veiled by bread. You will never abruptly rise to soothe the cries of a wailing infant, nor, nor stand athwart to monsters beneath the bed. But often enough, you will go whenever summoned to the bedside of the dying to comfort and anoint perspiring foreheads, chasing away real monsters. You will never comfort a sick third grader home from school with the flu, but you will don your stole to console and absolve countless sin-sick children who long to be healed. You'll never cherish a little princess who will steal your heart and wrap you around her little finger, but you will introduce countless souls to the Prince of Peace who sacrificed all for them. You will never have to stay up late worried sick about the kids, but you will always be searching the horizon poised to run out and meet the prodigals who have wandered from home. You'll never read bedtime stories, but nightly you will intercede on behalf of your children, praying for their protection and peace. You will never watch your bride walk down the aisle with tears in her eyes for you, but you will stand at the foot of the altar as Christ's bride approaches to consummate in Holy Communion. You will never grow old with the one you love, but the one you love will make you ever new. My God, what a life, and it is yours, O priest of Jesus Christ. I came to realize that when Jesus calls a man to the priesthood, he doesn't call him away from wife or family or children because he wants to deprive him of something. He calls him away from that particularity to give him something so unbelievably precious to him, which is his bride and his kids. Like, we are not called fathers as a sort of pity. It's not like, well, they don't really have kids. Let's just call them father, right? No, we're called fathers because what we believe as Catholics is that the spiritual is more real than the natural, the supernatural is more real and more efficacious and more powerful than the natural, which means the fatherhood that I live as a priest is more impactful, more life-giving, more generative than natural fatherhood. The wonder of God's design is that he's given priests a fatherhood 
and fathers a priesthood. He didn't take anything from me. He gave me something so incredible. Like a priest is not someone who does certain things. A priest is someone who is a certain thing, namely a spouse and a father. Right? You are conformed to Jesus the bridegroom. You lay your life down for the bride, the church, to generate spiritual children. Like This is why priesthood is reserved to men. Because it's spiritual fatherhood. Right? So often when I hear people say, why can't women be priests? It's a revelation that they don't know what a priest is. They think a priest is someone who does certain things. He preaches homilies. He visits people. He counsels people. Could women give better homilies and do, give better counsel and do better visits than most priests? Probably. But they can't be fathers. We used to be able to say intelligibly as a response, well, why can't women be daddies? <laughs> that doesn't really work in our world today. Uh, people think they can. A priest is someone who participates in the eternal spiritual generation of the father. Right? That's why a man studies to become a priest in the seminary. What is a man supposed to be learning in the seminary? How to inseminate the heart of the bride with divine life. How to put divine life into the heart of the bride. When Jesus instituted the hierarchical church, when he, when he called the apostles to be his priests, he did so only to remind the church of her intrinsically Marian and receptive identity. Like the church is, we think of the church as patriarchal. The church in her essence is, we call her her. The church is mother. The church is matriarchal. Like the church existed in Mary before the church was organized in St. Peter. Like St. Peter and the apostles and priests only exist to remind the rest of the church, your job is to open and receive divine life. That's the church's job, to be bride, to be bride. <sighs> okay, I'm going to pause and just see if, does anybody have any questions? Any questions like, I don't know, I didn't know what to do at this point. I was like, maybe do you want to have questions or not? People always ask, what's the best part about priesthood or what's the hardest part about priesthood? Um, I can answer those, but if there's other questions, I'd be happy to answer those. I've got a few things before I land it, but anything? Want me to answer those questions? Okay, I'll answer those questions. The best part of priesthood is when you see someone's heart conceive that divine life. When you see someone get it, so to speak. When you see someone like open themselves receive that that encounter that grace and like like the sign that like intimacy has happened in the natural order is you see a woman's belly begin to swell like you, when you see a pregnant woman you know like like no one thinks this but you know like oh she's encountered somebody <laughs> like on a deep way right when you see someone start acting like a disciple you don't see a pregnant belly, but you see a pregnant heart. And you're like, oh, they've encountered him. That's the best part. 
That's the best part. And the hardest part is, uh, the hardest part is the poverty. Not like the material poverty. What I mean is the, um, like today, for example, getting called to the hospital to be with one of our dear parishioners whose husband is really sick. And just going there with an inability to do anything, to say anything, to fix anything. Like the priest is the the one who gives credible witness to Jesus who said, I will be with you. Like if the priest doesn't, like the priest goes so that Jesus can be there. You're like, and you go, and you go there just to be there. And the times when I've had to like step into these like hurricanes of pain and suffering that people are going through, and you have nothing other than I'm here. That is so hard. That is so, so, so hard. All right, so what I want to I want to end with this. Both of these sacraments, marriage and holy orders, priesthood, they invite us into like Jesus' spousal love, right? Christ who pours himself out. Like at the center, at the climax of the Mass, we hear Jesus saying, This is my body given for you, right? Christ, his self offering. By the way, this was me giving communion to my mom at my first Mass, which was pretty dang awesome. But Christ at the Last Supper, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you on the cross. This is my body given for you. And when a husband and wife come to the altar on the day of their wedding, they come so that they can say those words. They can do what he did. Certainly in an unbloody manner, certainly in a much more beautiful way. They come to lay their lives down. This is my body given for you. They say those words definitively once, yeah. But then you say those words over and over and over again in toil, in job losses, in moving, and pregnancy, and, and morning sickness, and breastfeeding, and coaching, and bandaging, and boo-boos, and like, this is my body given for you. And care, like, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the image that kept coming to my mind was how on family vacations my dad in the airport used to be like a, like a, like a camel <laughs> carrying every piece of our family's luggage. Like as a kid, you don't think anything of it. You're just like, yeah, that's what my dad does. <laughs> right. But like now I know, like when I have to carry luggage, I'm like, God, this sucks. This is hard. <laughs> but like, there was my dad, you know, that was my, that's what my dad did. This is my body given for you. You know, and I only find out now as an adult, how many times and my dad traveled a lot for business. How many times my dad would catch these red-eye flights on these business trips so he could come home the next day and coach my games? I didn't know that. But he'd be so freaking tired. You know? This is my body given for you. The dance. You dance the dance all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Or the priest who stands at the altar. It's my first mass. This is my body given for you. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the only way to have life. To have life is to give it away. 
to lay it down. This is the only way to have it, by giving away. This is, you have to enter into the paradox. To live, you have to die. To have life, you have to lay it down. To be free, you must enslave yourself to something. To be filled, you have to be emptied. This is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. Whether you're consecrated, whether you're married, whether you're a priest, you got to lay your life down. Like, because, like, we're all getting invited to the cross. All roads lead to the cross. I think it's really something that there's, you know, think about a cross in the ground. There's four sides, right? Picture four roads extending off from those four sides of the cross. Those are the four vocations, right? Marriage, celibacy, single life, and consecrated life. All those four roads, they lead to the same place. They lead to self-surrender. They lead, uh, we're all invited to behold. We're all invited to receive the beautiful body, the broken, blessed, given, beautiful body of Jesus. We're all invited into it.